Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. Tonight, we have a very special podcast. I can't tell you how dear to my heart it is. You can probably tell because I'm wearing my collar tonight that something is different. Something is different. And we have um, two of my closest friends and advisors and, and colleagues and brothers in ministry, Father Joe Sacconi and Father Rick Storsell. And our history goes uh, way back. We actually went to Union Theological Seminary together. And um, all were not only bonded in our faith journey and in our ministerial journey, but as it turns out, we all um, had white-collar justice issues that we're going to hear about tonight. Um, we know our stories so well, each of our stories, that uh, hopefully we can just kind of just chime in and fin finish each other's sentences. So what we're going to do is we're going to allow each of them to speak for five, five minutes or so, tell their backstory. And then we'll kind of get into conversation and maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about seminary and what's driv driven each of us um, to this uh, part of our journey. So, uh, Father Joe, why don't we start with you and uh, take it away? Thank you, my brother. And it's an honor to be on, on your podcast. And we've been working together literally ever since seminary on and off, but specifically in, in the past four years with the White Collar Ministry Group. My journey uh, started off very differently. I, I, 19 years old, um, I wanted to be a cop and save the world. And truly, that was my, my call. Both of you met me in seminary, and it was like this big transition. Cop to priest? What the heck's that all about? And I, I could not have been more clear. Back in the day, I wanted to save lives. And as a cop, I tried. I really did try that. But I really wound up just making their lives much more complicated, mm -hmm. as well as my own. But now as a priest, I'm trying to save souls. Um, I assume we're going to get into the journey, uh, my journey through the criminal justice system in detail. But uh, in brief, uh, I started off walking a beat. And uh, as you gave the nickname, the beat goes on to our podcast. Um, I went all the way from that beat cop to being in charge, to being the, the sheriff of one of New Jersey's most affluent and, and largest counties. And um, in the twilight of my career, after 20 years, uh, it, it came to a, a terrible end. And I'm going to share that in, in detail. But the journey actually showed me that we can persevere no matter what happens, that no matter what life throws at us, there's still an opportunity to change, to grow, to be better, to still make that difference. Literally, oh my God, now it's now in retrospect, it's nearly 40 years. When I woke up and said, I want to change the world, and now finally, because of both of you, we're changing the world. Thank you, Joe. That was beautiful. Um, Rick's your opening statement. My opening statement, right, yeah. So I will say that I have a very different track of ministry uh, than Father Joe, and even you, Father Joe, that... I was raised in a ministry environment. Um, my mom was the director of children's ministry when I was born. And so I know a lot of people like to talk about pastor's kids being kind of different from the masses, so to speak. Uh, I was kind of in that genre where I was always at church. Church was my home. It was a place where I could find fulfillment. And I didn't really know what that meant when I was growing up, and then eventually got into college. And by accident, I actually had a double major of both political science and religion. And it was my minister from back home that encouraged me to consider that a little more seriously. And so I went through the path of trying to figure out what it was that I was trying to do in my life. I felt like I had this ability to be able to interact with people and Political science, it, it, you know, I was in uh, Drake University, Des Moines, Iowa, Iowa caucuses. It was a, a very, um, you know, influential epicenter of politics. And so I got to see the nitty gritty of what that was like. And after I experienced it, I was like, no, no not, not in a million years is that going to be something that I actually do for the rest of my career. And so the alternative, by happenstance, that I happen to have the double major of a religion and so I pursued that and eventually ended up finding that this was a place where I felt called to be able to 
do the same sort of things that I was doing in political science and social science and all that. And went into seminary and had the great fortune of meeting both Father Jeff and Father Joe. And I thought things were great. I mean, this was the ideal circumstance. However, towards the end of my experience at seminary, I developed a gambling addiction. And in concert with meeting somebody who I ended up marrying, um, that I found that the, the tension between my own personal um, needs as somebody who has and discovered later addictive personality, as well as the need to be able to care for another human being, was uh, something that just found attention. And it kind of escalated where when I was serving in my first ministerial position in 2013, things seemed to be going great. And over the course of the next year and a half or so, my gambling addiction that I kept secret from literally everybody else. And I was keeping it secret from my wife at the time. And it came to a head where I had discovered uh, and found gift cards on the ground of my church that uh, I had picked up and used and was discovered for that cause. And so not only did I have to face the judgment from the congregation who had trusted and had entrusted for the care of the spiritual formation of the young people of the congregation, but I also had to face legal consequences because there was a certain element of um, a demanded justice that was taking place at that time. And so while it was, it was about dollars uh, I had to pay the price of either going to court to fight that and risking a felony indictment because in Illinois, there is that um, statute that says anything over, I think it's $100, is a felony indictment. And so here I am as somebody who didn't realize what was going on internally in my own soul, as well as facing the external pressures of the India around me who were betrayed by my actions. And so I had to, to wrestle with that and ultimately ended up taking a, a plea deal as a misdemeanor serving, I think it was a total, it was a 14-day jail sentence, uh, but ended up getting down to about five days in jail. But that was kind of a very transformative experience that I had, where it was kind of a wake-up call. And I had to reassess um, and acknowledge the fact that I had a problem. And fortunately, I had friends around me, like you, Father Joe, Father Teth, who understood that people go through difficult times and they had to go through the, the process of recovery and admitting that, in fact, I had an addictive personality. And in this case, it was a gambling addiction. And over the course of that period of recovery, which took probably about two years or so, just to reorient myself, I found that there was healing and an opportunity to share my own story for others who have gone through similar things and they're not quite willing to, to share those moments. And so I find myself still in that process. It, it's a daily thing that I go through, but I'm also extraordinarily for the opportunity to be able to share these things that have happened. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a wild journey, but I'm, I am blessed to be here and grateful that things have turned out the way that they have because it was a necessary transformation in my own yeah, so, uh, so Rick's not only are you, uh, Father Rick's, excuse me, on this call, or, or not only are you um, a classmate of mine, but we were ordained together. That so we, we have so many, many bonds. And um, 
and uh, and of course uh, that was at the um, you know direction and uh, of uh, Father Joe. So um, Joe, um, what since Rick's got into his uh, his story about um, how he got into trouble, why, why don't we hear yours because it's uh, it's equally as powerful. Thank you. Um, but before I actually go into how I got in trouble, I want to talk a little bit about trouble itself. You know, my 20 years on the police department, my 20 years and three months on the police department was absolutely amazing. For 20 years, I had a wonderful, privileged, amazing career. Um, and I really, I loved being a cop more than anything. And I, I dedicated my heart and soul and being into it. And I kept going to school. Um, undergrad in criminal justice, a master's in police science, um, a doctorate um, in educational technology that helped transform police training for minority stress issues. And all of that education, the reason I'm sharing that, um, has not only taught me, but shown me that most crime happens for a reason. There's a motive. Uh, there's a cause and effect that leads to crime. And, and most of the crime that I dealt with as both the local cop and as the sheriff um, other root causes are, are poverty and um, communities of hate and uh, struggling in the environments that we, we grow up in. You know, Father Jeff, I am so privileged to be on your our weekly call where we deal with so many amazing white-collar criminals that share a similar story to, to both you and Father Rick's. Uh, uh, whether it's substance abuse or addictive behavior, all those things that happen. Um, and, and, and I, I, I don't join you in, in that, uh, only because I think uh, my motive wasn't money. Um, it, it wasn't, I can't blame it on behavior that was oriented by substances. Um, if anything, maybe a little bit of a need for power, but there was a reason for that. Um, the long story short, the long story short of my, um, my mistake or my, my dropping the ball as the boss um, is an interesting dilemma. I, I really had no interest in politics, and it wasn't until the twilight of my career uh, that I was asked to run for this political office. And the county sheriff is a political office. And I reluctantly did it. And I did it at my father's urging. My father was a retired police captain, almost chief of police, and it was actually the Democratic chairperson who approaches me and asks me to, to fill um, a vacancy, vacancy caused by the governor appointing the county sheriff to take over state corrections. And I told my dad that, you know, I didn't really want to do this. I didn't want to put myself in the spotlight. I was worried about my personal life. I just thought I was so happy doing what I was doing. I was a local police supervisor. I was on the board of education. Everything was going wonderfully. I agree, and I run for that office. And very sadly, I won, and it changed my life forever. And I went into that office um, like a gangbuster. I started make, breaking all the rules. I did the first ever hiring of an all-Latino class of officers because they were lacking. Uh, I did the first ever full female class of corrections officer needed to run um, a jail. And it was wonderful. It was amazing. When my dad helped me to run for that office, we had made um, him the campaign treasurer. That was great. 90 days after I became the sheriff, um, dad would be dead at age 64. It devastated everything that I knew and thought and changed my whole outlook on what was happening and how, how to function. And just because it seemed like the logical thing to do, we made my mom the treasurer of the re-elect Sheriff Saccone account. Um, to jump forward near the end of the career, um, two young men, one of whom uh, I knew since he was very young as a local cop. He was a local garbage man. I knew his family. He was a great kid. I hire him. The other kid um, was one of my students when I was a college professor at Monmouth University. Um, like young, he was 19 years old. And I remember me being 19 years old, wanting that job so badly. And I hired them both. They had minimal, they had zero 
police experience. And they both became detectives and, um, and they started serving under my command. My career ends when both of those two young men are in my office. And conversation goes like this. Sheriff, we're going over the campaign finance issues and we found seven people that have gone over and above the amount that they're supposed to give you legally. What should we do? And my response was, guys, that's an elect violation. Um, if we get caught, you give the money back. Um, we weren't stealing the money. The money was just going for re-election. And, and, and that was it. It was a nothing comment in my mind. Uh, literally a month later, my own lawyer would be in my office and I would listen uh, to that conversation because both of those young men were wearing wires um, to, to tape that. And my lawyer said, uh, county prosecutor's giving you 48 hours to resign as sheriff, to plead guilty um, to this, uh, and to vacate this office. They're gonna allow you to get your pension and you're done. If you don't, um, they're arresting your mother, who's the campaign um, treasurer. So the decision aside from, I was wrong, and I knew better. The answer should have been, give the money back immediately. I don't know why I didn't do that, except I wanted, I wanted to stay and help people. I really did. That was my crime. Um, at the end, I would plead guilty to a crime called demand of campaign contributions from public employees. In essence, that I made my sheriff's offices go to my parties. Um, and it changed my life forever. I did not perceive or believe that that was going to be a big thing. But what happened is that that classifies you as a felon. And even though I never went to jail, except that I ran a jail, um, I, I am forever stigmatized. I am forever um not able to do so many things. One of the more important things is to vote. We're in a, one of the most important election cycles of my life. But because of that one mistake that so many, countless people make in the world, um, our life has changed forever. And I'll get into more detail, but that's the long story short. Yeah, thank you both. Um, I, it's amazing to me how we each grew up very, very differently. And yet at critical moments, we were called upon to make a decision. And um, we, uh, all three of us made the wrong decision at the wrong time. Um, in my case, I had a slew of co-occurring disorders. I was bipolar. I was self-medicated. I became a uh, addicted to prescription opioids. You know, you know my story. Um, and I grew up in a very fractured home environment. And um, I've worked with um, not just um, people who are prosecuted for white collar crimes, but all kinds of other crimes. You, you know, you both know I ran a a nonprofit um, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, and I also. Um, associate pastor of a church in, um, in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. So most of my experience is around people in the inner city and who have, didn't have the advantages I had. So I've been asked so many times, with all the advantages you have growing up in an affluent suburb of New York, how could this have happened? And the only answer that makes sense to me is that I was maleducato. Okay, there's, there's a, an Italian phrase for your father, Joe. I was poorly bred. I grew up without the character necessary. I mean, my parents were absentee parents, so we had to raise ourselves. So when the critical moment happened, for me, and it was more than one moment, and it was more than one thing, but when, it when it, I was called upon to find that character that I needed, it wasn't there. And um, I have no one to blame for that. I'm not, uh, I'm, I, I had many, many chances to, uh, to, to straighten myself out. But um, I couldn't. I was sick. I was addicted. 
So we all come to this with with the with the, um, with different um, backgrounds, and yet we're bonded together by our brokenness. So, uh, so Rex, let me ask you a question. You're you grew up in a, a house of ministers, right? Or, well, so 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 just a, a background. Uh, so my mom, very uh, religious, faithful person. Um, she took on the uh, job of children's minister director. Uh, my father actually is uh, not a Christian. He's he's not a believer, um, and so it was a very interesting kind of situation that the community that our family ended up growing into. Because we had, you know, he, he wasn't anti-religious. He wasn't anti-Christian or anything like that. He just didn't. Whereas my mother um, was very faithful from her upbringing and all that. My, my siblings, I have a younger brother and a younger sister who also were raised in that environment. And what was interesting for me is that I was, I mean, I, I don't want to kind of overstate this, but... I was, as the firstborn, um, I was kind of the golden child, somebody who was seen as one who could do no wrong because they were raised in an environment of love, care, compassion. And I, I would say that um, regardless of my own faults, the way that my parents raised me, I would hope to raise my own children in. It's the choices that I made after that point that ended up leading me. So I think that there, there is kind of that tension between where I came from and what I became and the ability for me. And a lot of it, a lot of it was the, my own ego as somebody who it wasn't necessarily my parents. My parents were always pushing me to be better and also could acknowledge when I was doing bad things. It was the, the community that I was raised in, in the church that said, you are, you are, you know, the, you should be a minister. You should consider being a minister. You're just great. You're wonderful. You're this, that, the other thing. It was, it was quite the experience to go through. Um, I'm, I'm 32 years old. So, uh, it was, you know, 10 years ago or, or whatever that I went through this whole experience of being told that I'm, I'm the bee's knees. Like I'm, I'm the best thing that could have happened to this church and I'm, I'm going to make everyone proud. And so that was kind of the attitude that I took from the community that I'd been raised in and put it out there as to, you know, I could, I can help give mistakes, mistakes are mistakes. I can, I can make mistakes and I'll be okay. And I done that up to that point where I made the fatal mistake of realizing that I'm also human and also susceptible to those various indiscretions that I think a lot of ministers have to kind of come to grips with that we all have our own addictions. We all have our own kind of uh, eccentricities that need to be kept in control, but they can only be kept in control when you have a conversation with others about the reality of the place. And I was not, never, I was never honest about the place that I was in. In the end of seminary, I mean, everything was great. At my final year into my first year of ministry, it was a challenge because I felt like I had it all sorted out. I was, I was that up and comer that I thought I knew everything and it just, it, it didn't work out. And it was a, it was a challenge that I had to, to deal with because man, when it hit, uh, it, I tried to bury it. I tried to bury it over and over and over again until ultimately volcano just exploded and I was forced to reap the rewards of what I'd done the past couple. So Rick, Rick's, wh how did your family take it? Were they supportive? Were they uh, blaming? Were they uh, appalled? Were they, uh, what y you had, yeah, you had this 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 family of of some contradictions, but certainly it was a it was a a, a very good um, a family to have come from. So, what did they say? What did they think? You know, I will say, um, 
And this is something, too, that I would encourage all of those who are parents who have children who make mistakes. They still love me. And they said, regardless of what I did, they would support me, you know, in, in all the, even when I was in denial, they, they supported me. And afterwards, when my denial was revealed, they still supported me. They were there. They were constantly there. They were my rock. And I feel like that is something that I, I would wish for anybody who's going through a situation like this, that you have people who will love you regardless of anything that you do. And it turned out that, you know, they had faith in me. They had, they, they trusted me when I was lying to them. And then when the truth came out, they still loved me. And I think that was that motivation to keep going on, to know that there was going to be a tomorrow because I had people around that could help me. And really, they were, they were the cornerstone of my recovery work. I mean, after I lost everything, I was, I was married. I had a great job. I had, you know, all these different things and I lost everything. And they were there when I felt and had nothing left. They took me in and said, it's okay. Yeah. We know deep down that you're, you're capable of so much and the ability for me to accept that I was loved. There's nothing more than the experience of knowing that you, no matter what you do, no matter where you've been, no matter any any of the situations that you've been, that there are people who are going to love you. Uh, I feel like a lot of us have to go through. So I'm that's that's kind of where I found my rock. And that's kind of where I built up my recovery program from knowing that I had a place to lay and I had a place to recover. I had a place to build up knowing people around still love me. And Joe, you, you grew up in a very tight Italian Catholic family neighborhood. You still live there. And, 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 it, it probably couldn't have been more enveloping in terms of a, of a, of a culture of, of support. What happened in your family and in your neighborhood and, and how did people take it? And not, not just, not just the, the, the sheriff, but little Joe. Great question. And I was in awe of um, Father Rick's response. And there's so much that I relate to. And, you know, I, I paint the picture of a very privileged life, and it indeed was. And, and like Rex, I was the firstborn as well. Uh, dad, all the grandparents from Italy, um, um, mom and dad met in junior high school, intense relationship. Dad would grow up to be, uh, after the Marine Corps, a high-ranking police official. Mom would be the first female director at the New Jersey Meadowlands. Giant Stadium was like a... A, a picture perfect upbringing. And um, even though I had all of the resources and all of the gifts that should have turned out to be a wonderful, a wonderful life, and it was. Um, the issue uh, wasn't addiction. The issue I actually categorize as the three S's secrets, shame, and stigma. And for all of those years, and that you know, I was the oldest of three, and Dad was a brand new cop. And to get at, get me out of the house, uh, they sent me to uh, Sacred Heart Catholic School, and I put on that first uniform. And all those rules were very, very real, and many of those rules still exist. And all my life, I played by the rules, right through that whole police experience. Everything uh, was by the book, and the way the church um, told us it was supposed to be. But what I was hiding uh, from everyone 
um, would come out um, when I was chair. And that's why I did not want to run. And that conversation that I have with my dad, um, uh, uh, and my dad and I never, ever talked closely or personally. He was so much larger than life. And I literally, as a boy, was afraid of him. Even as a cop, I was. And um, the secret that I shared with my dad um, as I was running uh, for, as I was considering running for that office, was um, that I was in love with a man. That man is in my life now for 24 years. It is the most stable, beautiful, amazing relationship one could ever hope for. And my father, because of probably those political connections and just the way the system worked, promised me, don't worry, it's not going to come out. And it did not come out during the election. And shockingly, literally, I would listen to tape recordings after I won that office of union leaders of that department saying, we have to do everything we can to make sure that this effing bag does not get elected. But I did, except I didn't tell anyone. I made such a terrible, terrible mistake, not only not being honest with people, but not being honest with me. Um, you asked Rex, you know, how did, how did the family respond to it? And my dad had died, um, a year and a half earlier before I took that fall from grace. And the morning that I took that very simple plea agreement, I thought it was going to be nothing. Um, I literally was the sheriff that morning when I went to work at nine o'clock, went into uh, a courthouse and, and took a plea for what I thought was a nothing thing except it was on channel two, channel four, channel seven, channel 11. And it was one of those breaking news, breaking news. So my mom got to watch it live as um, I did that. And just like Rick's mom and family, she could not have been more accepting, more loving, more gracious, and more kind. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I learned through this transformation of being a priest, uh, it's not really seminary that makes you a good priest, it helps. But what made me a good priest was the conversations around my mother's kitchen table and talking about love and acceptance and forgiveness, all the things that I'm trying to do now as a priest. Um, you know, everyone, there's not one listener, no matter who you are, that has not made a mistake in life. The mistakes that we may have made may be a little bit bigger, but even if they're not, Everyone, everyone drops the ball now and again. It's what you do after that that'll make the difference. So this podcast is probably probably going to be watched by people who have been arrested. And they're up in the middle of the night freaking out and, and um, trying to find every piece of information that they possibly can um, just like I did um, at the time when I went through it and when when father Joe went through it it was it was still baby internet we didn't have the resources we had now and certainly there weren't people who were out there being as honest as uh, as we try to be and by the way Joe I want I want to thank you for 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 sharing that I um, I know that uh, I know that uh, for a long time that was a, a that was difficult for you. Um, so, where I'd where I'd like to spend the second half of this is 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 in talking about what kind of what we've learned, what kind of comfort we can provide to people. The, I mean, you know, here's the here's the target. There's someone out there right now who's watching this and has absolutely no idea what they're about to go through and they're going to cling to the next piece of information that they get and then the next and then the next and they're going to be utterly confused now of course what we want them to do is to reach out and to, to come out of their isolation to come into community and we do have the white collar support group every monday night and we, we and we talk about that but what's the thing what's the liberative moment and 
And then what we can kind of do is go from that into, into our church. Okay. So it's a real personal thing that I'd like us each to talk about. And then we can kind of go into what the progressive Catholic church is. And, um, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap up with, um, what takeaways that we want people to have. All right. So, um, Rick's, wh- why don't we start with you? And, um, now you're talking to someone who's been arrested within the last day or two or month. And, and what do you have to say about it? So, you know, I have kind of limited experience when it comes to this, this area. You know, I have my personal experience and I've been similar experiences. But the reason why people come to me and talk to me is because they have a place to go. And I feel like that's probably is that there are communities of faith that will accept you, will listen to you, counsel, um, just allow you to, to let loose the things that are on your soul. And I, I think second, too, as you're going through this process, for me anyway, what I found to be most helpful was when I was willing to admit what I had done wrong and the ways that I could myself. And it is not something that you can easily come to. It's not something that happens. But it's also something that is so important for you to get a sense of orientation as to who you are after the bad things in your life have happened. Like, where do you find this? Right? Who are you as a person? And you know, that, that concert of both self-reflection and Father Jeff, you know, it, it's been wonderful to listen to all the podcasts that we've had. Um, and it is phenomenal to hear these stories. And something that I kind of, I wanted to push forward was the fact that we need to acknowledge where we have misstepped and how we can improve our own sense of being, how we can better overall. That is so important. Secondly, it's having a place to go, having a place to be able to share those experiences and be able to come together and allow those, those really hard moments. And when I, when I'm a part of the, the white collar sport group on Monday nights, um, and I hear those things, it's, it's a, it's a solve. It's a balm to my own soul. When I hear people who are struggling with the same things that I was dealing with two, three years ago, trying to find a place, trying to find um, people who could empathize, who could understand, who could listen, and wouldn't, you know, wouldn't necessarily give advice. That's not really the main point. It's to know that you have a place where you can verbalize, verbalize these things that you know in your heart that are not right, that need to be changed, need to be reoriented. And there are plenty of places to be able to make that happen. And then, obviously, being able to assess that and being able to move forward and take all of that information that you get and all of those experiences that you get and try and, and make, a, make, a, make a new make a new way to understand you because for me when I was a compulsive gambler I mean that was that was my sole focus I I was so convinced that I could become a successful compulsive gambler and be able to make it all work and when that failed nowhere to turn luckily luckily I had places for me to fall when I fell and those people call me. And so I would encourage, yeah, I would encourage everyone just both to self-reflect as well as know that there are communities out there this one, that we can all find a place to make it work, reorient the compensation in our own souls. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, so Joe, same question for you. Um, you work with 
a lot of people from a lot of different uh, backgrounds. You have a thriving um, ministry for um, people who uh, want to get married, but the uh, but the Roman Catholic Church might refuse to marry them, or interfaith marriages, um, and you are uh, a weekly attending attendee of a white collar support group that you wear your collar on every week and people call you father joe so i'm hoping what you'll do is you'll talk a little bit about identity and and how far you've had to come in order to be comfortable with yourself and to be someone who's a healer and how far that was from the moment that two days after you got arrested and how how the serpentine path of getting to you know the place you're in now thank you uh, great question and, and you know it, it's interesting that i do i wear my collar on that white collar support group every monday because i'm honored and privileged because of you father to do the opening prayer um, so I bring everyone together in prayer and faith, and we do it very ecumenically, and it, it's wonderful. You know, looking back on, on all of this, I remember when we first started out, it was a small group, only two or three of us, and, and I would tell my story, and I would call it my fall from grace, how everything was going great. And it was one of the early participants on that group who, and I can't identify him by name, but he was a former United States Navy captain, a captain of a ship. I have so much respect for this man. And he, he actually changed or inverted uh, the words for me, literally on a call, and it did it repeatedly, and now it's embedded in my head. He said, Father, you didn't fall from grace. You fell into grace. Mm. And I, I truly believe that. But, you know, my awakening happened at 19 years old. And to be even a little bit more transparent and honest, you know, I became a cop not to follow in my dad's footsteps. I became a cop at 19 years old to prove to my dad, there's a better way. Uh, the way you're doing it, this old-fashioned Marine Corps way, that's not what people need. People need a police department that's caring, that's reflective of who they are, whether it's people of color, Latinos, women, or LGBT. And so I became a cop to show the world, like, minorities can do this, and I can, I can do it too. Although I didn't tell anybody, and that was the problem. Um, but my whole career focused on fighting the system. So my advice to the, to the person that's in the midst of the criminal justice system right now is something that I knew literally when I was 19 years old. The criminal justice system is broken. It does not work the way it's supposed to. It treats people so differently. But you have to take responsibility. You have to fight for your own justice. Uh, and it's so important that the first and the most important thing you do is find forgiveness in yourself. You can't expect the world to forgive you if you can't look in the mirror and recognize, hey, I messed up. Um, I made this mistake and, and, and I can make it better. Jeff, you said something so important um, that this is, you have to do it in community. So the second thing I would tell to, to our listeners, don't do it alone. Um, and I did it alone. I literally, my whole police career and this whole career under this new stigma and my whole identity as a gay person was all done in isolation, all done in secrecy, all done alone. There are so many resources out there. There's so many people that want to help and that can make a difference. And, you know, Jeff, I, I love you. I, I really do. And, and I assume most of your listeners know, but if they don't, um, like you, you were an officer of the court. You were an attorney. Um, you know, I, I really just want to end that with just a, a little bit. It's not advice because I, I don't want to give any legal advice at all. But the first thing I did was turn and confide in an attorney, an attorney who was a family friend, a former prosecutor, um, who, in essence, uh, wound up taking every penny that I had to put in an escrow account, state of New Jersey seized all of my campaign um, contributions, nearly a you know, million dollars. And at the end, I had nothing, zero. 
uh, that lawyer that I put so much faith in and so much trust uh, would years later uh, do the same thing to another high-level profile client and would wind up shooting himself in the head underneath the bridge. Um, so even though you have to trust lawyers, trust as many different people as you can. Talk, go out there, get the information yourself, and don't just rely on someone with a legal degree hanging on their wall. Rely on your own sense of justice. And then finally, I think, no, I know. I know what helped me through the entire process from day one was my faith. It was unwavering. Even in the darkest, most terrible days, um, it was there. And even though Roman Catholic Church has a lot of issues, although I'm so proud to be part of the Progressive Catholic Church, it's Pope Francis that said 150 days ago, death and darkness do not have the last word. He, of course, was referring to the pandemic. But to those of you facing incarceration or facing a lifetime of stigma, death and darkness do not have the last word. Faith, hope, love, and God will have the last word. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. Um, I, I get interviewed a lot or I'm a lot, on a lot of podcasts and the conversation is inevitably about um, the, the, the arc, you know, the, 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 uh, the riches to rags to redemption story. And because people need to hear the whole thing. Um, we don't often um, hear the whole story from people who first come in because they can't. They're in trauma. They, they, they don't really know what's going on. They don't know what's happened. They don't know what's going on in their life. We, we try to give them comfort. We try to counsel them, give them information. But we know that only 1% of that information is getting through. People are scared to death. And um, so the message that I like to give is that um, this is the toughest thing that I ever went through in my life, by far. But the greatest thing, the most noble thing that I ever went through, not easy, but the process of, of change and relying upon other people and being ripped away from all of the, the things that I, I clung to that gave me an identity or that gave me what, um, coping mechanisms that were mostly unhealthy and to try to find a new way, um, I couldn't do that alone. And there was no support group at that point. And there wasn't really a lot of information. And my wife had thrown me out and for good reason. But I found the love of another woman who stood by me. And, and you both know Lynn. Um, but how would that happen? Like, it's, it, it, how is it possible that I could have a love story in the midst of all of this madness? And, um, and she didn't, she didn't sign up for that. You know what I mean? She, she never thought that she was going to be with someone who was going to have my kind of story. And yet, the profound closeness that we have is, is incredible. And mostly it's because she's my compass. She sets me straight because I can be crazy. <laughs> so um, in the last few minutes we have, let, why don't we just talk about our compasses and how we found this particular church and how that has led us to a true north, and how um, we've embraced a church of, of misfits, of, of, of people who were not accepted in other places. And um, Joe, I'm going to let you lead on this, obviously. But for me, I was a member of other churches. I tried to get ordained in other churches, and they, they wanted no part of me. So I found acceptance and comfort and openness 
and ultimately um, ordination in this church. But this is not a usual church. And we're wearing collars, but we're not Roman Catholic. I mean, we, we have other attributes. I'm married. So, um, Joe, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because, because I think it's a really good time to kind of state the case for people finding what's true to them and not being in judgment or at least suspending judgment long enough so that you can find out facts that could be helpful to you. And just a brief bit of history. Uh, Catholicism is broken down into a number of different segments, but the predominant strong ones are Roman, Orthodox, uh, and Old Catholic, when the division happens with um, two different popes. And we are part of that Old Catholic tradition, um, but we are under the progressive banner. Our uh, presiding bishop is Edmund Cass in South Carolina, an unbelievably um, open-minded progressive priest for over 30 years. And I actually, uh, I nicknamed the church the Church of Second Chances because we welcome all people, no matter who they are. The reason our, men our wedding ministry is so large is because we do marry people that Rome just laughs at and says, no, aside from the interfaith marriages or um, one, one of the, the huge groups that, that we help are couples that uh, one may have been divorced, where Rome refuses to even give communion to certain people. We don't believe that at all. Uh, the banner is that, especially under the Eucharist, this is food for your journey. This is not a reward for being a good Catholic or a good Christian, but that's our, our, our whole ministry. It's a ministry of, of second chances and thinking a different, more uh, progressive way. And um, this is um, seven years I've been a part of the independent Catholic movement. And even though I grew up devoutly Roman Catholic, I recognized early on so many of the challenges. And as much as I love Pope Francis, one of his first and um, it could not be more poignant comments were, I will never ordain a woman. And in 2020, that's unacceptable. We just have to be a, a church that welcomes all. And I'm not trying to persuade all of our listeners to, to, to go on to the progressive Catholic church movement. I am persuading you to find a, a church that feeds you, that does something, but also one that's forgiven, one that's open-minded, one that's accepting of all, especially uh, those who have fallen and broken. Um, if it's okay in my closing statement, just to demonstrate how I feel about being a progressive Catholic priest, I want to end up on um, my talk that I would have shout out to those two young men, 20-something years old, sitting across the desk from me, both wearing wires and tape recording, someone that they called a friend. Uh, one of them's a high-ranking um, prosecutorial investigator in a New Jersey county. The other's a high-ranking police lieutenant and uh, community affairs officer. Both of them are coming close to their pension and had a beautiful, shining career. My message to both of them is um, thank you. Thank you for showing me the way to God. And I pray for you each and every day uh, that, that you recognize that life can change and that you, especially you as the police, um, have the power to do that. And then maybe a shout out to all the law enforcement community that I recognize uh, is under tremendous scrutiny, probably because of the mistakes that they make every day on television. Um, it's time to, to recognize that we are... I was a public servant. That's what we do. We're sworn to serve and protect people. Finally, God's giving me the opportunity as a progressive Catholic priest to finally do that the right way. Father Jeff, thank you. This has been amazing. Father Ricks, I love working with you each and every day. What a great evening this was. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's beautiful, Joe. Um, so, uh, Ricks, um, why don't you talk about what this denomination has meant to you and how it relates to your faith journey. So I'll, uh, I'll try to be as brief as I can. Um, when it comes to understanding what a faith somebody who loves church, you know, I kind of assume that 
the denomination that I was part of was going to be consistent in that manner of as an, an awkward young kid who had very little friends and found the church as a sanctuary and a refuge. Um, I viewed my my church and by default the denomination as a representation of that experience. And you know what? It wasn't necessarily the case. And I feel like that's the same way for a lot of people who are Roman Catholic or those that have been in evangelical before. That's not always how it kind of plays out when push comes to shove, when you have to deal with really tough situations. There's always that and but kind of situation. Like, ah, yeah, you know, we love you, but... Uh, and and so what I found with Father Joe's ministry for the St. Joseph Mission Church and the generally uh, first, I feel like it's stronger because of the flaws of the individual participating in this community. And I would say for all of you out there who are searching for a rock, who are searching for a place, there are those faith communities that for those of us like Father Joe, Father Jeff, myself, who have experienced those things, it creates a level of empathy that we can all engage with, that we can all grow from, and that we can know when we come in from the outside, we will be accepted, not rejected. And that was kind of the differential moment that I had where it was in my denomination that I'd grown up with. For all that I'd done over the course of it was basically 15 years of ministry prep and then going into a couple of years of ministry. And when I developed my gambling addiction and had my issues that I felt a bit. And it's, it, it is tough for those of us who don't feel like we have those mechanisms of support that I feel like is so important to the human experience to know that we, in fact, has something to pull back on here, you know, whether it's Father Jeff's white collar ministry or the, the reentry program, prisoners.org, all those things, a place where people have experienced things that are either, you know, whether they're, they're less equal to or worse than the situation that we're talking about, we've all been through a very similar situation. And that empathy creates an environment for us all to come together and to be honest. Not just to share what we have to do, but to grow from those experiences. To listen and to learn from things that others have experienced and bring it all together into this, this package that we call our own personal lives and to go out and to go forward and to make something up. So, yeah, I, I, I find it as a gift, um, you know, in, in whatever form it may take, but I also acknowledge, you know, that it may take a little bit of certainty, but we're all here. We're all here for you, and hopefully if you're listening this far in the podcast, <laughs> that you know that, you know, you've got a place. You've got a place. That's beautiful, Rex, and um, it's no secret that... Um, I'm Jewish, right? So, wait, um, what? What? No, no. Oh, that totally ruins everything. It does not. Jesus was Jewish. That's the whole point of this. He's fooling around. <laughs> if, if you're listening and not watching on video, Rick's is fooling. I'm around. kidding. I'm kidding. But the, but um, I consider myself a, a double belonger, and that was a term that I think was coined by. Um, um, one of our professors at Union Seminary, Paul, help me. Um, Paul Nitter. Paul Nitter, thank you. God. Um, who wrote Catholic Priest. Yeah, who wrote a, a you know, brilliant book uh, without... Uh, um, without Buddha, I could not be a Christian. Without Buddha, I couldn't be a Christian. I right? not be a Christian. Right. So, um, but that informs everything I do. You know, I grew up, Jewish. I was raised on Long Island as a Jew. I, I still, I've, I've been um, baptized and ordained, but I still consider myself Jewish. So um, we, we, 
it, it just leads to this, what you were talking about, Rex, this welcoming to, to be able to be empathetic with everybody. And uh, certainly in our, in our ministry, um, it's non-sectarian and ecumenical. There's plenty of people who come to us who are atheist or agnostic or whatever, Muslim, a lot of, other, a lot of things. And, um, and um, we don't privilege any one practice or religion over any other. That's what progressive means. So uh, we welcome you. So um, thank you both. It was a brilliant, brilliant night. And, um, and Father Joe, why don't you just lead us out in prayer, and that's how we'll sign off. Let us pray. May the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of all humanity help us to recognize that we are all together on this journey and to be with us to support us, but most of all, to love us. Amen. Amen. Thank you both. Good night, everyone. Good night, everybody.